Hey guys, I'm Lorena and thanks for checking out this message today. We're so glad that you're here and we want to connect with you and your family. So please text River Connect to 97000 and you can also um, visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and all the upcoming events we have. And lastly, if you want to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount you want to give to 84321 or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Uh, thanks again for joining us, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of going to the Passion Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you've never been there before, never heard of it, it's this massive conference that happens every year for college-age students from 18 to 25. They get together, you hear bands play, a bunch of pastors speak. It is an awesome, awesome experience. I got to go with one of my best friends. His parents wanted to bless us by paying for our tickets, paying for us to get into the conference. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time with literally thousands and thousands and thousands of college-age people coming and worshiping the Lord, praising his name for a whole weekend. It was, it was just amazing. And I remember hearing this one pastor speak on a topic that, that changed my life forever. Now, if you don't know much about the conference, the, the whole conference is centered around one idea, centered on one purpose found in Isaiah 26, 8, which says this, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our souls. And I remember hearing over and over again this pastor say, Your name and your renowned God are the desires of our soul. And he was talking about how we need to live. We need to give our entire lives. We need to sell out to make this name known. And I remember that being such a pivotal moment in my life. And I still hear that over and over again as I, as I read the scriptures. How he just challenged us that we need to sell out to make God's name known. That's the idea that we're going to look at today. As we continue studying the Sermon on the Mount, as we go to, to Matthew chapter 6 and to see what the Lord has for us. In the last few weeks, we've looked at a couple awesome, uh, awesome things in the scripture, a couple amazing topics. Listen to Pastor Josh's sermon last week and just how he hit so wonderfully on how we're, we're not to pray with vain repetition. We aren't meant to just recite words. We're not just meant to, to say things that, that sound good so that we think the Lord will answer us. And I do have to say this, if you were here last week, how impressive was it that he just recited that, that one guy saying the rosary? I mean, just rattled it off without missing a beat. I was like, whew, come on now, Pastor Josh, you're killing it, right? But it's important to know that the, the heart behind our prayers, what is it? What is our faith? Where's our faith at when we're praying? What does that reflect in how we pray? What does our prayer convey of our meaning of who God is? And now we transition today into the actual contents of what our prayer should look like. We have this logical progression of going from what's our heart at? You know, that's, the, that's the, where we need to start with wherever we go. Where's our heart at? And then the Lord gives us this structure of prayer. And so if you want to go with me to, to Matthew chapter 6, it'll be on the screen as well, but Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 10 says this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what he's doing here, right? He just said it's not about vain repetition. So what Jesus is giving us here is not just these words that we need to pray over and over again. This isn't some prayer that's the only prayer we need to pray. Say it exactly like that and move on. But he's saying, pray then like this. Here's the structure of how you should pray. And he starts this prayer with such an amazing statement. Our Father who is in heaven. And as I started thinking about that that statement, the, the Jews at the time, if you study through it, they never referred to God in this way. Say what you want about them, right? As we read through that time, they had a reverence and respect for God. And sometimes they did take it too far, right? As we, as we see, Jesus is tackling the legalism within the Sermon on the Mount. But this was not a phrase or a title they used to refer to God. And so I can just imagine them when, when Jesus said that, them just for a second being like, what was that? And it had me thinking of like, do you, any of you guys know of a friend or a family member who just kind of says things that make you go, what, what were you saying? Now, if you're thinking of them in here, don't, don't look at them. Don't give them the side eye. I know you're probably wanting to, right? But then you just say something and you're like, what, what did you just say? Like you think of a moment in my life, me and my friends one time we were hanging out. Uh, my buddy just brought, brought a truck. It was, it was awesome. He, he, was, he loved driving it around and one day it just stopped working. And so my other buddy is a mechanic and he asked him, okay, tell me, tell me what you've done to it. What, what's, what's going on? So he goes, yeah, I, I changed the spark plugs on it. I gave it a new oil change. Uh, I was out of coolant the other day, so I put water in my coolant tank and, you know, and then going on and on. And then immediately we were like, wait, what did you do? Can you repeat that? He goes, yeah, I put water in my coolant tank. And I was like, listen, I am the last one to know anything about cars. Your car is broken. Do not come to me. I don't get it. But I know you're not supposed to put water in that thing, right? And immediately we just knew, oh my gosh, what are you doing, right? But this would have been one of those moments for the Jews of this time. Because just a verse later, right, Jesus starts off by saying, your father knows what you want before you pray. That would have been the first one of like, whoa, wait a minute, what did he just say? And then he doubles down and says, our father, when you pray, pray like this, our father who is in heaven. One commentator says, this is, this is the first instance, there's no, there's no evidence of anyone using this term before Jesus to refer to God. And what Jesus gives us is just this amazing, this is amazing description of God. We get both sides of it, where he's our personal father, who's close to us, who hears us, who knows us, who loves us as a father does. But he's also our God who is holy, who is perfect, who is far above us, who's in heaven. It's an amazing statement. And what he does, he just gives them another thing to challenge their belief on who God is, to continue challenging them to to understand God more. And then he gives us the first request, He gives us this first petition here, right? There's gonna be six petitions as we go through the Lord's Prayer. He gives us the first one, and it's this. Hallowed be your name. Now, I think if if we get this part of the prayer correct first, it will help us to truly understand how to pray for the other things. We we cannot get to the rest of the prayer. We cannot get to to, to whatever Jesus tells us to do next without understanding this first, Because if we don't get hallowed be your name, if we don't get that correct, 
we will inevitably confuse the rest of the prayer. We'll have it skewed. We'll have a misunderstanding of what Jesus truly wants us to be praying for here in the Lord's Prayer. So now there's two questions that we need to answer to understand this. The first being, what is the name that Jesus is referring to here? What's the name that Jesus is talking about? And then secondly, why should we want this name? Why should we want the name of God to be Halloween? Now, first for the word Halloween, if you're like me, maybe you, you read through the Bible and you, you've heard something before and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But then you read through it and you're like, what does that actually mean? Right? What does that word actually mean? And, and Halloween was one of those for me. As I was studying it, I was like, yeah, I've, I've heard the Lord's Prayer before. I know what the, I, know, I, I get what it's saying. But then when I really tried like understanding it, that word was kind of confusing to me. And so here that word means to sanctify, revere, or to make and keep as holy. And essentially it means for something to be set apart, something to be made known, or to be shown that it is different and better than everything else. What Jesus is telling us here to do is to make the name of God glorified. Jesus is wanting us to set our minds on the most important thing, which is the glory of God. And that is an issue for a lot of us. It is an issue for the world. So many of us have ourselves at the center of the universe. It's not God. It's not what he wants. It's about me and how my life is. And that's a struggle for me, if I'm going to be honest. Too often I just have my, I'm so self-centric that it's just all about me. We see that in the world, right? Follow your heart's desires. Do whatever makes you happy. Jesus is telling us here, don't, don't buy that. Don't buy that lie. Focus on the most important thing, which is the glory of God. And so from here on out, I'm going to refer to Hallowed in this way. We're going to refer to it as bringing God's name glory. Now, when we think of the name of the Lord, oftentimes we're thinking of a specific name, right? Where we're thinking of some sort of title or way to refer to God. And if we look in the Bible, we see the name of God described in some glorious ways, some amazing ways. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself in these ways. El or Elohim, which means his strength or his power. Jehovah, meaning the self-existing one. Yahweh, I am that I am. Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. Some wonderful ways of how our God reveals himself to us. So then the question becomes, which one is Jesus referring to here? Which name? We, we, there's numerous ways God gives his name in the Old Testament. Which one is he referring to here? The answer is yes. All of them. Because what Jesus is telling us here, it's about the character of who he is. It's the character of who our amazing God is. Because the name of the Lord is not just a name. It's not just a title. It's not something, just something we avoid to not speak it in vain. But the name of the Lord is the glory of God. 
It is making sure that the world knows the power, might, majesty, grace, mercy, wrath, justice, and righteousness that is found in who God is. It's all about who our God is, how he acts, and how he's revealed himself to us. When we talk about glorifying the name of God, we're talking about making his name known in the world. Making his name known to our loved ones. John Piper says this, speaking of the Lord's Prayer. He says, when Jesus made the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, that is, see to it that your name be revered and treasured and honored. He was showing us that the touchstone of all believing prayer is zeal for God's glory. Jesus taught us first and foremost we should ask God to make sure he is seen and revered as great. We should want this and love this above all. This needs to be our sole focus. This needs to be the number one thing. So why then should we desire for the name of God to be made known, magnified, set apart, and revered in the world? And I believe the answer for that is because that is God's main desire. I pause there for a moment. God's main desire is to glorify himself. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, wait a minute. Doesn't God tell us to be humble? Doesn't he tell us to count others as more significant than ourselves? Isn't that a bit egotistical of God to say his main desire is to glorify himself? Now, we have a human understanding of this, right? I think of myself, I loved playing football. Played it my entire life, still love the sport, still love watching it. But I played from 7 to 18 years old. Every time I trained, every time I worked out, every time I was at practice, every time I stepped on the field, I wanted people to know that I was the best. I played like it. I wanted everyone to know when they left that game, that kid is the best. I was very prideful in that sense. I wanted it to be made known. That's not the way God is wanting his name to be made known here. It's not in this human prideful sense, but rather he wants his name to be made known because he's the only one that can bring us fulfillment. He's the only one that can satisfy us, sustain us and bring us salvation. Now I want to show you in scripture where we can see this. Because over and over again, we see God acts ultimately for his glory. He does save because he loves us. Absolutely. He loves us so much. He heals. He provides. He shows mercy because he cares and is gracious. But in all these examples and everything that we're going to look at, God wants who he is to be made known. And this is the truth that, is, that I have been learning, and it's so exciting to me. I love going through scripture when something just pops out to you and the Lord makes it clear. And this is one of those things. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of this. So the first being in Exodus. So in Exodus chapter 3, if you're going to follow me there, we're going to be there for just a moment. What's happening in Exodus chapter 3? The people of Israel, the Israelites, had been in slavery for 400 years. Slavery in Egypt. Through oppression, affliction, horrible, horrible things. They've been extorted, taken advantage of. 
I'm sure a lot of them were feeling no hope at all. Like it was never going to end. An awful, awful circumstance. And then we see God is about to act. God is about to move. And what he does is he appears to Moses in the burning bush. Right, so Moses flees Egypt and he finds God in the wilderness and this burning bush appears before him. And we read in verses seven through eight, this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I have seen what you've been going through. I have seen the affliction that your people are in. I know I know what's going on. I am close to them. And he says, I'm about to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. I'm gonna do something so wonderful, so miraculous. We are going to free your people. And Moses, when this happens, he asks, when I come to your people, God, when I go back to that land, I tell them what's going to happen. Who do I say sends me? And we see that in a couple of verses later in verse 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. What Moses in essence is asking here is who is this God that sends me? Right, because with claims this big, the people are going to want to know who this person is, who this God is. They're going to want to trust this, all right? Because he's coming back to Egypt, and I can just imagine, right? Imagine being one of those Israelites. Slavery for 400 years. Generation after generation. And some guy comes to you and goes, listen, I saw this burning bush. It's God, he said to me, we're going to free you guys. We're going to be free, right? We're getting out of here. This burning bush said it. Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) What's going on here, right? Is he off his meds? What what did you see out there? What's going on? They're going to want to know why they should trust this claim. Why should they trust who is sending you, Moses? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you to them. Tell them the only one who can save is coming to them. No other God can save you. None of the false gods that Egypt have can save you. The only one that can deliver you out of the hand of these Egyptians is coming to you. And then we see why God is doing this. The very next verse, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Listen to this. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is how I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He says, I'm saving the people. I'm delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians. His name is what's to be remembered. God's saying, Moses, I am freeing my people. I am going to be their God. And the reason I am doing this is so that throughout all generations— All the nations, for the people that hear of what happened, they know who did it. They know that I am this great and glorious God. 
When he does this, he is saying, when I save you, when I perform this miracle, you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the God that can do this. I am the only one that can do it because of how I am saving you. Exodus 6, 7 says it again. He says to the people, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You shall know. Listen to me, people. You shall know that I am the God by what I am doing. Now I show you these verses because we're gonna look at the reasoning for why he did this from other Old Testament writers. They're gonna reflect back on what the Exodus was. And generations later, they're gonna say the same exact thing, that God did it for his name, for his name to be known, for his name to be glorified. The first example being Isaiah 63, verses 11 through 14. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go to the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. We see here, Isaiah says, the people of Israel rebelled against God at the sea. When God took them out of Egypt, he performed all the miracles of the plagues and they get to the Red Sea and they say, how are we gonna get past this? God, why'd you bring us here? Why'd you bring us to this grave? They didn't trust in God. They didn't deserve to be saved. Yet God still chose to save them. Why? To make for himself a glorious name to make for himself an everlasting name because he led his people to salvation. To make for himself a glorious name. Nehemiah chapter nine, another example. This is after the Babylonian exile. They're coming back after being captured by the Babylonians. They're rebuilding the temple, building the walls of Jerusalem. And the priests recount the history of Israel. They're recounting to the people of Israel and they get to the part of the Exodus in verses nine through 10. And this is what they have to say. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Remember Exodus chapter three. Throughout all the generations, I am to be remembered for what I did. I am to be remembered as the God who saves. And generations later, generation after generation, they're reciting the history and they're saying, look at what God did. Bring glory to his name. The Lord enacted his judgment on the Egyptians who were enslaving the Israelites to make a name for himself so that his justice and his power would be known in the world. So that the surrounding nations, so that the people of Israel would know who this God is. Another example, Psalms 106, seven through eight. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God saved the people of Israel here, not because they deserved it. In fact, they didn't deserve it. They rebelled against him. They didn't remember his wondrous works, yet he showed them grace. Why? For his name's sake. So that his name would be glorified. So that we would know that salvation is on us, no one else but the Lord Jesus, but in God. And the Exodus is just a great example of the purpose of God in salvation. Yes, it is the best gift that any of us will receive. That we can be pardoned of our guilt and receive the free gift of God's grace. Yes, it is wonderful that we are saved through the mercy of what our Lord did for us. But we can't lose sight that salvation in every circumstance is for his glory. Even in another verse, another verse in Psalms 25, 11, says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. The psalmist is saying, God, I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve to be saved, but God, to glorify your name, save me. In a saying I, I heard that talks about this, which is so wonderful, it says, we get the salvation, he gets the reputation. We get the salvation. We get the most wonderful gift. And God gets the reputation as the glorious God of who he is. Over and over and over again, this principle is taught in the Bible. That the purpose of creation, the purpose of salvation, the purpose of everything is for him. For him to get the glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He is the only one worthy of this glory. He is the only one worth living an entire life to make his name known. He's the only one that deserves this. Because even when we didn't deserve the salvation... Even when we were enemies of him, he still chose to die for us, to save us, to bring us salvation. He loved us so much. This is why God deserves this glory. And he's the only one worthy of it. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can satisfy. Nothing else can sustain us through this life but our God. And that's why we, need to live our entire life to bring glory to him. He's the one that has given us life. He's the one that has saved us. Without him, we have no hope. So when we're saved, we need to, we need to lay our entire life down and say, God, it's all for you. God, it's all for your glory. We need to pray and have the ultimate desire for God to be glorified in the world the way he is in heaven. Because when we have a true understanding of this, that God's main desire is for his glory as the all-sustaining, all-satisfying, 
the way, the truth, the life, the only way for salvation, then it enables us to truly pray the last part of this prayer that we're going to look at today. Understanding this is what allows us, what enables us to pray this next part. And that's Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reason it's so important for our main focus to be on the glory of God is because if we aren't, then we can't truly pray for his will to be done. If we're self-centric, if we're the center of the universe, the first part of our prayer is never gonna be, God, let your name be glorified. What it's gonna be is, I I hope my name's glorified in the world. I hope I'm known. And then you just follow that through. It's not gonna be, God, let your will be done. It's gonna be, God, let my will be done. Let what I want be done. This is a logical progression that we see here. That we must have our minds fixated on God. Because if we're God-centric, if we view him as the center of everything, then we're able to pray, God, let your name be glorified. And then from there you go, God, let your will be done. Too many of us, and I, I say that as myself too. I know this is a hard thing for us as humans to grasp. Because like I said, the world is selling us a lie. The world is selling us a lie that that all that matters is us. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings you joy. Doesn't matter about anything else. Just listen to yourself. And it's a lie that myself included, that so many of us are buying. And instead of focusing on God's glory, I focus on my own. And in turn, I don't pray for God's will to be done in the world. And the best example of how this is lived out is in none other than our Jesus. Our Jesus is the best example of how being solely focused on the glory of God enables us to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Because if you read those words, they're very similar, very familiar to something else that we read later on in the Gospels. Right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his, of his betrayal, the night of his death, he's going through physical anguish. He knows what is coming before him. And the Bible even tells us that he's stressing out so much that his pores begin to open and blood begins to drip out of his body, knowing the physical death he's gonna go through. And not only that, but the place he's gonna stand in for sinners how the entire cup of God's righteous wrath is going to be poured out on him. For us, this physical anguish that he's in, knowing he's going to die, says this in that garden. Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. Not as I will, God, but as you will. The way Jesus could say this prayer is because his main desire was to glorify God. He was solely focused on that. When we read in Philippians 2, the reason he set aside the privileges of his deity came down into his creation. And I I love singing songs about it. A song I love says, you walked among your created. 
You slept beneath the stars that you made. The reason he stepped into our place and died for us is because he was solely focused on the glory of God because he knew the most ultimate way for God to be glorified was for him to die for sinners, was for the God of the universe to step into the place of those who didn't deserve it, who couldn't pay the price and die so that they could be saved. And the truth for us from this is this. If we are focused on self, if we are only focused on our own glory, what we want, then it is impossible to pray, not my will, but yours be done. The only thing that will matter in our life is how good is my life? Is it up to my standards? Is it what what I want to happen? How comfortable is my life? That's the only thing that's gonna matter if we're focused on ourselves. And the truth is if we live like this, if all we ever do is live for ourselves, then we'll be left completely empty because we're putting our faith in things that cannot fulfill us. They may fulfill us for a while. You may find some joy in it for a little bit, but the Bible says it's a fleeting pleasure. It's a fleeting pleasure that's gonna go away and it's not gonna fulfill us. And the only thing that's gonna happen is we're gonna be left empty. And even think of it in a practical sense. If we aren't continually praying this, continually praying for God to be glorified in the world and not our will to be done, but his, then we're never gonna be able to truly live that out. Because the truth is we see Jesus did it throughout all the gospels. Jesus didn't wait to get into the garden to pray this. Jesus didn't wait till the last night of his earthly life to pray, God, let your will be done. We see in the gospels, he went to a desolate place. He went by himself. He went and prayed to the Lord early in the morning, late at night, and he prayed for God's will to be done. If all we ever do is wait for the hard times to come to pray this, we're never gonna be able to truly live it out. Because when the hard times do come, and they will, doesn't matter how long you've been living this Christian life, how old or young you are, you know hard times are coming because we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. If we don't pray this, if we aren't continually setting our hearts on this, then we won't remain steadfast in our faith. We won't be able to make it through the trials. We'll look at the situation and we'll go, God, why would you do this to me? God, why is this happening to me? You must not love me if this hard thing's happening. And I'll be the first one to admit, I think all of us can, it's hard to understand the reasoning sometimes for why we go through, through sufferings, for why we go through hardships. It's hard in the moment to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But if we don't pray this continually, we will not be able to say, God, I trust you to know best. God, I trust you to glorify yourself in this situation. Because Pastor Josh mentioned this last week. He is our good father. He is our good father who knows best. He is our good, good father who knows what's best for us to build us up in the image of Christ and to bring glory to himself. We need to trust that and put our faith in it. We need to pray 
that it's not our will that's done. And that we just trust God, whatever it is that you know to glorify yourself, let it happen. We need to trust the words of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things, good, bad, ugly, everything that happens, God will work it out for good. You might not see it this side of heaven, but I promise you God is working in whatever situation you have going on. He will work it out for your good and his glory. So then the question becomes for us is this. Is this our main desire? Do you truly desire for God's name to be glorified in every area of your life? At work? In your marriage? The way you parent your kids? At school? in your family, whatever it may be, is this your main desire? Do you truly desire for God's name to be glorified in the world? And then from that, does your prayer life reflect it? Does what we pray for reflect this? Is this what you want to sell your life out for? Because I'm telling you this, there is no greater joy than to live an entire life solely for the glory of God. It's not going to take joy from us. In fact, it's going to give us the most fulfilling joy. And I want to end this with this story. Now, hopefully it encourages us to want to live this way. Last weekend, my best friend got married. It was an awesome day. I felt so much joy and happiness for him. And what was so amazing about that was, it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me. It wasn't about my day. It wasn't about what was going on in my life. It was about him. And I got to see him have the greatest day of his life. That is what it's like when we bring glory to God's name. It's not about us. It's about him. When his name is known, when a sinner receives salvation, when God moves in your life, you bring glory to him. When you see it happen in your family's life, in your friend's life, when you see God move and be glorified, the joy you receive from that is unspeakable because his name is being made known. His name is being made much of. And church, I pray that we run after this together. I pray that this is our main desire that we receive the ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction of making our great God known to the world. And I want to end with this quote. If we feel that our joy comes from our own self-exaltation rather than from God's self-exaltation, none of this will be good news. But the design of God is for his people, for his people is that his name and our joy rise together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I thank you for who you are. 
I thank you for the salvation that we can find in Jesus. And I pray for every single person in here. I pray for our church that we would live our entire lives to make the name of God known. That we would glorify you in the way we live, in the way we pray, in the way we act. Lord, in all things and in everything that we do, be glorified. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray.